Amen. Well, go ahead and take your copy of God's Word and turn with me to the Gospel of John. John chapter 19. We continue our study of the death of our Savior and we continue to see the beauty and the glory of Jesus in the darkest moments. These are difficult moments. This is the darkest moment in all of human history, and yet in these moments, God's glory is shining through more brightly than ever before. We've been seeing the fulfillment of prophecy. Last week, we looked at just two sayings of Jesus on the cross, and we saw how both of them fulfilled prophecy in in amazing ways, in glorious ways. And this morning, we're going to look at the last four sayings of our Savior on the cross. Four sayings that are direct quotations from the Old Testament. Prophecies being fulfilled in every single aspect of what Jesus is going through. So I want to read these verses. I want to pray. I want to ask God's blessing. And then I just want to walk through the narrative to see our Savior displayed on a cross. As we sung earlier, casting our minds to Calvary, where Jesus bled and died for me. John chapter 19, verses 25 through 30. Therefore the soldiers did these things, but standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus then saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished to fulfill the scripture, said, I am thirsty. A jar full of sour wine was standing there, so they put a sponge full of the sour wine upon a branch of hyssop, and they brought it up to his mouth. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head, and he gave up his spirit. Father, we come to a section in the gospel records that just takes our breath away. God died. How can that be? We see the beauty of your love and your grace, but here we see the horror of what sin demands. It demands a penalty. It demands a punishment. And we see both on full display. So, Father, help us to see both. Help us to see your love on full display and help us to see your judgment on full display. We see grace. We see wrath. We see a beautiful picture of your amazing love. No clearer anywhere else in all of human history than this. And we see what every sin that we have lived, are living, and will ever live out cost you. So Father, once again, We find ourselves on holy ground, the holiest of ground at the foot of the cross with our Savior saying his last words and bowing his head and giving up his spirit. Father, many of us, by your grace, know these verses. We know this section of scripture. But Father, I pray as we've been praying over the course of these last few weeks together, looking at these verses, may it seem to us as if Just yesterday, our Savior died. May these verses be so real to us that we would feel the full weight of the darkness that covered the land. This is not an eclipse. This is not some scientific thing. This is the judgment of God on the Son for all who would believe. This is amazing. to to stand and to see. God, please let us not take this lightly. Remove the distractions, remove the chaos, remove anywhere where our minds might be going and let us focus on Calvary. Let us feel the weight of these verses. 
And let us walk out of here changed because of what we hear our Savior say. May we hear him say these words. May we hear him whisper these words and shout these words. God, may we see this in our minds and hear our Savior speak to our hearts that we would be changed. Open our eyes to behold wonderful things from your law this morning. Holy Spirit, give us the ability to see clearly what is happening in these verses. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. We have studied the, the first three sayings of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is crucified, and while he is crucified at 9 o'clock in the, the middle of the morning, in uh, what's heading into the afternoon in daylight, he is crucified at 9 o'clock, and he cries out while he is being crucified, Father, forgive them. They don't even know what they're doing. And then he sees uh, his tunic, the one that his mother had given to him, being gambled for, and he sees that that is breaking his mom's heart, as is everything else that's going on. And so he says, Mother, you need to be taken care of. Behold your son. Son, behold your mother. Take care of each other. I'm leaving. Take care of each other. And then because of the love that he is displaying, both in forgiving those that don't even know what they're doing, in executing and murdering the Son of God, and also in taking care of his mom, even in his dying moments, the thief on the cross stops reviling Jesus and says, this man is innocent. I am getting what I deserve. And my buddy thief on the cross, you are as well. And so he turns to Jesus and using that very first gospel tract that said, Jesus, the Nazarene, the king of the Jews above his head, he looks and he says, you're a king. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. And Jesus says, I'll, I'll do you one better. Today you'll be with me in that kingdom. I won't just remember you. You'll be with me in that kingdom. There's a lot of talking. There's a lot of interaction. There's a lot going on from 9 o'clock to noon at the foot of the cross. It's like any other normal crucifixion, any other normal execution. It's just another day in the life of Jewish people. It's another day in the life of Roman guards and soldiers that are doing their job. But at noon, everything is going to change. At noon, everything changes. At noon, we read in the, the Gospels that the sky goes black. John Stott says, Our sins blotted out the sunshine of the Father's face. And Spurgeon says, At midday, it was midnight. Darkness covers the land. And from noon to three o'clock, darkness is going to cover the land and nobody's going to say anything until the very last few minutes of Jesus' earthly life before he is killed on the cross. This is not an eclipse, though people try to explain it away as some form of an eclipse, or maybe the sun was just covered by clouds. This is judgment. If you remember in Exodus chapter 10, uh, this is one of the plagues. This is one of the 10 plagues, darkness covering the land, a picture of God's judgment. But you remember in the Exodus, when darkness covered the land, it covered only the Egyptians, but the Israelites, it was still light. Here, the Israelites are not spared. It's darkness over the entirety of the world. Why? Because one hymn writer says, Well might the sun in darkness hide and shut his glories in when Christ, the great maker, died for man, the creature's sin. The one who made the sun is about to be killed the one who made the tree that he is being crucified on is about to be killed. The one who made the people who are killing him is about to die. And so darkness covers the land. And as darkness covers the land, silence covers the land. There had been so much talking, much movement between nine and noon in the daylight. But when noon hits and darkness covers the land, everything changes. Nobody says a word from noon until about 2.50. Nobody speaks. Nobody moves. Why? Because it is during these three hours, during the three hours of darkness, as a picture of God's judgment upon sinners, that Jesus is experiencing hell. He's experiencing the punishment for sin on the cross 
for you and for me, and he can't speak. You can see it. You can visualize it. He's nailed to a cross, and as gruesome and as horrific as that would have been, he's able to breathe, he's able to move, he's able to speak, he's able to look around, but he knows what's coming. And I, I just, I can't help but think, what would 1158 have been for Jesus? As he sees clouds coming in, and he sees my relationship with my father is about to be severed, and I'm about to experience only his wrath for nothing I have ever done. 1159, the sky starts to grow dark. And he takes one last breath and he winces and he grimaces and he just holds on as the fury of God's wrath is poured out and noon hits and no one says a word. No one can speak. They just see Jesus who had been nailed to a cross and for three hours is breathing, is talking, is able to move, is able to, to, to make an effort to speak. And at noon, he hangs on he grimaces, he closes his eyes, he winces, and he cannot make a sound. And everybody looks, and something's changed. It's, it's dark, it shouldn't be dark, this is very weird. And then they look at Jesus, and the, th the thieves on the crosses are looking at him, and something has changed. What has changed? What's changed is he is now experiencing hell. He's experiencing hell on our behalf. For three hours, he experiences hell on our behalf. And at the end, he speaks four very quick staccato statements. One of them is found in Matthew and Mark. Two are found in John, and another one is found in Luke. So we're going to harmonize the Gospels together and just hear the end. So three hours, two hours and 50 minutes go by, and then Jesus speaks up. Turn to Mark chapter 15. The fourth saying of Jesus on the cross, the first that we hear after experiencing the infinite punishment. Mark chapter, four, Mark chapter 15, verse, 50, verse 33, rather. When the sixth hour came, darkness fell over the land. So from 6 a.m., to six, or from 6 a.m. to 12, six hours. This is the sixth hour, and that's noon. Darkness fell over the whole land until the ninth hour, and that would be three. Add the three hours, that's 3 p.m. And at the ninth hour, so at that last little moment before Jesus is going to die, Jesus cries out with a loud voice. He has not spoken for almost three hours, and he breaks the silence. And I think everybody's silence is broken. Darkness over the land, and he cries out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which is translated, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He calls his father his God. This is a significant change of address. Only here does Jesus ever personally call upon his father as God. He's always called him his father. But here, the relationship changes. His father is no longer father to him. His father is judge. In the garden, Jesus had a father who would strengthen him and encourage him and send him an angel. On the cross, Jesus has a God who turns away from sin and judges him. But notice, it is still my God. It's still personal. It's an estranged relationship, but it is still a personal relationship. Even though the Father withdraws from the Son, the Son cleaves to the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Forsaken. Jesus had already been forsaken by his people. He'd already been forsaken by the Jews. He'd been forsaken by his disciples. But those would have been okay as long as he had the relationship with his father. But here he is forsaken by his father. 
John Flavel tells us why. If God is to bless us, he must turn his back on Jesus. If we are to be spared, Jesus cannot be spared. So he is not spared. He is forsaken by God. You think about being utterly forsaken by the God who made you. That, as sinners, to think about, as creatures, to think about being forsaken by the God who made you is a terrifying thing. But how much more so Jesus, who was not made, infinitely existed in perfect union with his Father and with the Spirit, and never sinned. For us, it's a horrific thing to think as creatures made by God and as sinners who have offended that God to be in a relationship where that is an estranged relationship, where our relationship is broken. That's a terrible thing to think of. But how much more so Jesus, who always existed in a perfect relationship with God and as God in the Trinity, no sin whatsoever. To contemplate that, Luther said, God forsaking God no man can understand this. No man can understand this. Forsaken. And he cries out, why? Why have you forsaken me? It's a cry, as A.W. Pink says, of distress, but not distrust. He's clinging to God, but he cries out, why have you forsaken me? Why? Let's answer the question. Why has he been forsaken? It's because of our sin. It's because of our sin. This cry of dereliction is the explanation of the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane and he's saying, please, if there's any way, let this cup pass from me. And when he hears nothing but silence, he knows he has to drink that cup. What's in the cup? It's the cup of judgment. It's the cup of wrath against our sin. What you and I deserve because of our sin Jesus is going to experience. The Father is going to pour out the penalty of my sin upon Jesus so that I can receive nothing but the blessings of God. Some people have a difficult time working through the judgment of God against sin and against sinners. Um, they say, well, a loving God wouldn't do that. A loving God would never send anyone to hell. Or the punishment is unjust. Uh, to, to sin in a finite space and time in a period of 80, 90 years, but then to experience infinite punishment for all of eternity, that's not fair. Well, let's just, let's take both of those questions. The fairness of hell and the lovingness of hell. Let's look at both of those. Fair. Is hell a fair punishment? Some people say, well, the punishment fits the crime. And that's true to a certain extent, but the punishment also fits who the crime was committed against, who the crime was, the, the person that you offended. Let's take an example. Kyle and I are playing basketball. And Kyle dunks over me. How, we don't know. <laughs> but Kyle dunks over me. And I get very angry because my honor has just been maligned. So I punch him, just as hard as I can, right in the face. What's going to happen to our relationship? What's going to happen? It's going to be a little bit rough for a little while, right? Next time I throw a basketball at him and say, let's go shoot some hoops, he's, mm, mm, let's wait a little bit. My jaw has to fix, hang on. But over time, because he's a godly man, wants to extend forgiveness, he'll say, you know, I forgive you and we'll be back. Let's say I punch him while we're playing basketball, and because he's so incredibly afraid of my incredible muscular form, <laughs> he calls the cops and he says, you know what, this man it has strength beyond that of the Hulk and he could potentially snap me in half, so I need to make sure I'm safe. And a cop comes out, a police officer comes out to make sure that we're okay, and I punch a police officer. Now what's gonna happen? Our relationship, Kyle and my relationship, will be okay given some time, but I punch a cop, I go to jail. Let's say for the purpose of our argument, somehow I make it before the President of the United States and I punch the President. So I punch Kyle, we have a couple months of struggle, but we'll be okay. I punch a cop, I go to jail, 
Upon the president, I might be charged with sedition and I might be killed. So same exact crime, punching somebody, same offense, but the punishment changes because of the people that I'm doing the offense against. Because of the people I'm hurting, the punishment changes. So what happens if you punch an infinitely holy God with your sin? over and over and over again. Just one is all it takes. If you offend an infinitely holy God, then your punishment will be infinite. It has to be. It's not an unfair punishment for God to say, you have offended an infinitely holy God, therefore your punishment is infinite and holy as well. It's not unfair. In fact, what is truly unfair is that God does not do that right now to all of us. The fact that he, as Peter says, with long suffering, waits to make sure if you will repent and you will come to him, he wants you. He wants you. And he's given us time. He's giving us time. So he is more than fair. What about love? A loving God would not send anyone to hell. This is an argument that most cults are, uh, originate from. Don't want to have a, a God that sends people to hell. Don't like the idea of punishment. It's not that I like the idea of eternal punishment. I, I don't like it. But just because I don't like it doesn't mean that I can just twist what the scriptures say. It means I have to preach them as truth and plead with people to turn to Christ so that they don't have to experience it. It's there. It's clearly there. But some people say it's not loving. God would, if he is a loving God, he would never send anyone to hell. How do you help reason with somebody over that? Um, I met my wife when I was in junior high. We were junior high sweethearts. Um, let's say, I say, Hannah, I, I would love to get to know you better. Of course, this is in college because you shouldn't date in high school. <laughs> Please, everybody write that down and make sure that my kids know that because they won't listen to me. Um, so, uh, Hannah, I, I think you're beautiful, you're wonderful. I'd love to get to know you better. Can we go out on a date? And she says to me, no. Um, th thank you very much for the offer, but no. I say, okay, all right. And dejected and having my soul crushed, I walk away and I go, you know what, I'm going to do this again. And next week, I, I would love to, to go out on a date with you. I'd, I'd love to be with you? No. Rejected. I'd love to. Be, no. Rejected. I'd love to. Years and years go by. And at last I say, Hannah, you don't understand this, but I love you. I love you. And because I love you, I'm going to marry you regardless of what you want. And you're going to be with me for the rest of my life because I love you so much. Restraining orders are made for such things as this, right? This is, this is not acceptable. And yet that's what people want God to do. God says, I love you. I want to spend the rest of my life with you. I want to be with you. I made a way for you to be with me. Will you have me? No, no, no. And not just for months, for years, for a lifetime. So what God does is say, you can have what you've always wanted then. You don't want me, and I'm not going to force you to be with me, so you get what you've always wanted, a place where you don't have to interact with any form of my love, my grace, my kindness, my patience. I, I, I'm out. It would be an unloving thing of God to say, you know what? I know you hate me, and I know you're going to hate heaven, but you have to be with me for the rest of your life. No, he, he speaks to each of our hearts and says, please, would you please come and be with me? Come and spend eternity with me. And as he woos us, if we turn and we repent and he saves us, then heaven is a place we've always wanted to be. We want to be with our Savior. People in hell aren't there saying, I want to be with God. I love him and I wish that he would have taken me to be with him. People in hell are saying, I don't want to be here but I'd rather be here than in God's presence in heaven. So it's not an unloving thing. In fact, the opposite would be unloving. It's still a terrible thing. 
Nahum chapter 1, verse 6 says, Who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like a fire, and the rocks are broken into pieces by him. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 they will suffer the punishment of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might. The completeness of the separation that Jesus experiences with his Father mirrors the completeness of the rejection that we deserve because of our sin. And yet he took it. He gladly took it. The hymn writer says, Death and the curse were in our cup, O Christ. T'was full for thee, but thou hast drained the last dark drop Tis empty now for me. Jesus drank the cup of wrath so that we could drink the cup of communion. Why is Jesus forsaken? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because if God the Father is to spare us, he cannot spare his son. He must forsake him. This brings us to another very interesting challenge when it comes to the Gospels. Hell, if I, if I die not believing in Jesus Christ, not following him as Lord, as Savior, as my greatest delight in this life, I would die and I would spend eternity forever in hell. Forever, forever. Infinite amount of punishment, never ending. And yet Jesus experiences that infinite amount of punishment from noon to three, in the span of three hours. How is that possible? That formula doesn't add up. There's two answers. Number one, infinite punishment had to be so intense and so fierce that it was forced into three hours, and not just for my sins, but for the sins of all who ultimately would come to repentance and faith in Christ. Eternal punishment shoved into the span of three hours. No wonder Jesus cries out, why have you forsaken me? No wonder he can't speak for three hours and then opens his mouth screaming. But the second reason why this formula does work, not just the intensity of the suffering that Jesus experiences, but the infinite worth of Jesus. Jesus is able to experience infinite punishment in the span of three hours because he himself is infinite. And he houses infinite punishment in his infinitely glorious body for you and for me. Why does he do this? Why does he go through this? Isaiah 53 verse 4 tells us that God the Father is the one who smites his son. Jesus from earliest infancy had suffered from man. At the beginning of his public ministry, he had suffered from Satan, but here at the cross, he suffers at the hands of God. And that's why he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is a direct quotation from Psalm 22, verse 1. Psalm 22, I believe Jesus is meditating upon Psalm 22 throughout the entirety of being on the cross. He's going to speak Psalm 22, verse 1 uh, explicitly. It's a direct quotation, and he is going to allude to the end of Psalm 22 as he speaks his final words. That's exactly what uh, Jewish students of the Talmud or of the Torah meditating upon a passage of the Hebrew scriptures, they quote the bookends of that passage to see where it starts, where it ends, and then meditate on and memorize the flow of the passage. I believe that's exactly what Jesus is doing. He's meditating on the cross on Psalm 22. And so he opens with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Exactly where Psalm 22 opens. And then he's going to close by saying, it's accomplished. And that's what Psalm 22 ends by saying, God has performed it. It has been performed. It's been accomplished. So Jesus cries out, the fourth saying on the cross, the first in the three hours of darkness. At the very, very end, why have you forsaken me? Verse 35, if you go back to Mark 15, Verse 35, some of the bystanders hear it and they began saying, behold, he's calling for Elijah. He's calling for Elijah. Now they're going to mock him through that. I think it's mainly sarcasm and mocking. Let's see whether Elijah is going to come and save him. But also, there are words in Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You can hear Eloi, Eloi. That if cried out with a loud voice, under the distress of crucifixion, with all of your fluids being drained out, 
it's possible that that might sound a little bit like Elijah. My Elijah, my Elijah. So it's mockery, yes, but also there are words in this phrase that come close to Elijah. And I think that's why Jesus is going to say the next statement. Turn back to John 19. After this, verse 28, Jesus, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the scripture said, I am thirsty. This is the fifth saying from the cross, I am thirsty. And at first glance, it seems like it doesn't really fit all of these incredibly profound statements and then just, I'm thirsty. But it fits, number one, because it's a fulfillment of scripture. It's a fulfillment of scripture. It's a quotation from Psalm 69, 21, or it's a fulfillment of that passage. I'm thirsty. It's a fulfillment of the Passover. Uh, John includes here, they put a sponge full of the sour wine, verse uh, 29, into his mouth, and they bring it up to his mouth with a branch of hyssop. John's readers would instantly connect what a hyssop branch was used for in Exodus. Do you remember what a hyssop branch was used for? It was dipped in the lamb's blood that you had sacrificed and paint the lamb's blood on the doorposts, lentils of your door, so that you would be passed over. John is making connections for us here through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to show us Jesus is our Passover lamb. He says, I'm thirsty. He's going to drink. This isn't the first drink that he has had. There's actually three cups at Calvary. The first cup at Calvary was offered when he was first nailed to the cross, and he said no. Remember, myrrh was mixed into that cup to deaden the pain. And he says, number one, I need all of my wits about me. I still have redeeming work to do. And number two, I need to feel every ounce of the wrath of God or else there's a sliver of infinite punishment that I would leave for my followers and a sliver of infinite punishment is still infinite. So he says no to the first cup. The second cup is the cup of the Father's wrath and he did not refuse that cup. He drank it in its entirety. And once he had finished that cup, he is able to drink this last cup. So he cries out, I am thirsty. I'm thirsty. This is the man who promised a woman at the well in John 4 that he had rivers of water that would spring up to everlasting life. This is the man who claimed he was the living water. Does Jesus here claim to be more than he actually is? Does Jesus claim in his public ministry, here's who I am, but here at the cross, I'm thirsty, I'm human just like everybody else, I have nothing to offer you. No, this is actually how he produces what he promised. The cross is how he produces what he had promised. The source of living water must first himself thirst before he can meet their needs. He must come to the very same place that everyone else is if he is to provide for them. And that's exactly what he had done, knowing, verse 28, that all things had already been accomplished. It's all finished. I have paid the wrath of God. The penalty has been paid in full. There's no wrath left to face. I've finished the task. And he says, it's all done. So he says, I am thirsty. Number one, he says it to fulfill Scripture. To fulfill the Scripture said, I am thirsty. Again, from Psalm 69, 21. But there's a second reason why he cries out, I am thirsty. And I actually don't even think it was crying out. Remember, just before this, he had said, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. And he had cried out with a loud voice such that people heard him and they misunderstood what he said. But Jesus is not done speaking, and he has something that he wants everyone to hear, and everyone to hear completely, clearly, perfectly. And so I think with nothing more than a whisper that maybe the, the very first soldier at the foot of the cross could hear, he whispers, I'm thirsty. Why? Yes, to fulfill Scripture. But a very practical reason, his mouth is parched. 
crucifixion drains the body of all of its fluids, drains the body of blood, drains the body of, ev- the body of every uh, fluid that you have, all of your stamina, all of your energy, and he has something he has to say. He's waited his whole life to say it, and he wants to make sure this is not misunderstood. He longs to say this. He longed from the moment that he realized on earth what his mission was. He longed to say these words. He has a sermon to preach. It's actually just one word. It's a one-word sermon in the Greek. And this is the most important sermon that you will ever hear in your entire life. And so he wants you to hear it. And that's why he says, with just a whisper, after he had just said something loud and clear that people misunderstood because he has no more fluids in his mouth, he says, I'm thirsty. And I think as he's given that hyssop branch, he takes a sip of that sour wine, he moves it around in his mouth, he makes sure he can get some life back into his voice box, get some fluid back onto his tongue, so that he can say what he has longed to say his entire life. Verse 30, therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he cries out, and the synoptic gospels tell us with a loud voice. He doesn't want to be misunderstood. He doesn't want to be quiet. He has a sermon to preach, and he cries out, it is finished. Loud cry, In the Synoptic Gospels, he wants this to be heard. Usually right before dying of crucifixion, criminals would be exhausted and out of breath and would be choking, trying to get a a word out, but not our Savior. After experiencing hell on the cross, of course he's going to be thirsty. Remember uh, Luke 16, the the rich man and Lazarus, the rich man is in hell and he says, "Just, just one drop, just dip Abraham's finger into water, just one drop on my tongue. So Jesus is crying out for when he says, I'm thirsty, give me one drop, give me water so that I can get life back into my throat and my voice box so that I can preach one more sermon. It's his greatest sermon. It's the most important word that he ever said. Spurgeon said, this one word would need all the other words that were ever spoken or ever could be spoken to explain it. It is altogether immeasurable. It is high and I cannot attain to it. It is deep and I cannot fathom it. The word in the Greek is to telestai. It has two meanings. One is to finish an assignment, to complete, to perform an activity. And the second is to pay something in its entirety. He had performed the assignment, the assignment that the Father had given to him. It's completed all of the rejection he had experienced, all the injustice, all the torture, all the forsaking, deserting, the sadness, the sorrow, the mocking, the jeers, the suffering. It's all done. He had finished the assignment. But more than just an assignment, he had paid in its entirety the price that you and I owe for our sin. The penalty that you and I owe. We deserve a penalty. And Jesus said, I'll pay that fine. And I'll pay it in its entirety. Nothing left for you to pay. This is an accounting term. It would have been stamped on all uh, ledgers that would have been paid in full. You have a debt, you pay your debt, it's paid in full, and the ledger would be stamped to telestai. Nothing left to pay, you're free to go. The books are balanced, the price is paid. What is paid? What is finished? What's accomplished? Everything necessary to save you, everything necessary to forgive you, everything necessary to redeem you, everything necessary to cleanse you, everything necessary to sanctify you, everything necessary to secure you, and everything necessary to get you to glory. Jesus says, I've done it all. I've done it all. Those who hear Jesus' one-word sermon as he's dying can say with R.A. Torrey, I am ready to meet God and to look in those eyes of infinite holiness because all my sins are covered by his atoning blood. It's finished. This is from Psalm 22, verse 31. You have performed it or you have accomplished it. It's finished. Do you believe this morning that it is finished? 
Maybe you seek to add something of your own goodness. Maybe you've heard the Christian platitudes like, God helps those who help themselves. Okay, I need to work hard, help myself, and then God will add his atoning work to my efforts. Maybe you've heard, I'll do my best, God will do the rest. Just, I want to be very clear, those are not Christian statements. Those are not biblical statements. When it comes to the gospel, we have no best to offer Jesus. When it comes to the gospel, we can't pull ourselves up by our own bootstraps. We don't have bootstraps. We don't have boots. We have nothing to get to God on our own. So when Jesus cries out, it's finished, he says, I've done the work for you. I did it all for you. And yet, how often do we say, thanks, I'm going to try and do some work too? How often do we want a piece of the glory? How, how arrogant, how prideful are we when we think, you know what, God, you did a lot, and thank you so much, but I need to give you my efforts. That's not the gospel. Do you seek to add something of your own merit to what God accomplished? Hear his sermon loud and clear. I paid it all. I accomplished it all so that all that you have to do is believe in the finished work of Jesus on the cross. Follow him and you'll be saved. You say, well, if Jesus really did finish it, why doesn't he prove it to me? He really finished it. If it's really paid in full, why doesn't he prove that to me? And I would just say, just wait three days. He's going to pay it. He's going to prove it. He's going he's to give you the final answer to that question. You want proof that it's paid in full? The Father's going to say, get up from the dead. The Spirit's going to say, get up from the dead. And the Son is going to raise himself and show forth the power that this is accomplished once and for all. He's accomplished it. Therefore, verse 30, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And he bowed his head. And Luke chapter 23, verse 46 gives us the final statement of Jesus on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus preaches his greatest sermon, one word sermon, and then he surrenders his life. This is a direct quotation from Psalm 31, verse 5. Psalm 31, verse 5, into your hands I commit my spirit. Jesus says, Father... Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Do you hear how powerful that word Father is? He began on the cross, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing because he hadn't experienced yet. He was not experiencing the full wrath of God on our behalf. But at 3 o'clock, at 2.58, he cries out, Why have you forsaken me, my God? Why have you? Not Father. The relationship has changed. But here we see the relationships restored The wrath has been paid, the penalty paid in full, it's over, it's finished. And so Jesus says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. For more than 12 hours, Jesus had been in the hands of men, but now he can rest in the hands of his Father. And you remember he said, nobody takes my life from me, I lay it down, and this is exactly what he's doing. And we're going to see next week that he does it at a very specific time to make sure that he's fulfilling prophecy. He bows his head, middle of verse 30. He bows his head. That verb for bowing his head is translated elsewhere in the Gospel of John as uh, to pillow your head, to put your head onto a pillow. He places his head on the pillow of God's sovereignty. His death is peaceful. This is why the centurion is going to say, this man is the son of God. Nobody dies like this guy. Nobody with grace, with peace, And with an excitement of anticipating going home, dies pillowing their head on a cross. He gives up his life. Jesus dies. And when he dies, the maker of the world, when the maker of the world bows his head, pillows his head, and dies, the world doesn't know what to do with that. There's an earthquake. You remember there's an earthquake when Jesus died. I just think that that's a a, a picture of the one who made the earth dies. And the world says, what do we do? The earth shakes. 
believers who had died, Luke tells us, are raised from the dead and start testifying of the finished power of Jesus Christ. That'd be very interesting. He had a funeral for a loved one. And then all of a sudden, a loved one knocks on the door, opens the door. What's Uncle Bob doing here? I remember Uncle Bob. We buried Uncle Bob. Why is he here? And he says, I'm here to testify that salvation has been won. Eternal life has been accomplished. I'm here to testify the power of Jesus Christ. There's an earthquake. Believers who had died are raised from the dead to testify the power of Jesus. And the veil in the temple, curtain is a better word for it, is torn in two from top to bottom. Josephus tells us that this curtain is 60 feet long. It's 20 feet high. It's 20 feet uh, wide, 60 feet long, 20 feet wide. And he tells us, he doesn't give us an exact measurement of the width of it, of the thickness of it, but he says it's as thick as an extended hand. So extend your hand out, and from the, the backside of the wrist all the way to where your fingers would end, that's how thick the curtain was. You guys have heard those, you know, how many doctors does it take to change a light bulb jokes? Um, there's one for the priests. Uh, Josephus says, we don't know how many it actually took to hang this curtain, but we're going to say a solid 300 priests to hang this veil, to hang this curtain. It was heavy, it was thick, and it's just ripped from top to bottom. 300 priests to set this up. And God, in one fell swoop, just rips it. Why? He's telling us two things. As we sung earlier, uh, he is our great high priest. We don't need to go to a priest, an earthly priest, to confess our sins as an intermediary between us and God. Jesus is that intermediary. Once and for all, he's our high priest. So we go to him, and before the throne of God above, he is our only plea. We have unlimited, unhindered, personal, intimate access to the God in the universe. We can enter the Holy of Holies whenever we would want boldly approaching the throne with confidence because of what Jesus had done. But secondly, there's another thing that this veil being torn from top to bottom is telling us. It's a very personal aspect of our God. It's showing us how much our God loves us. Remember what a good Jewish man would do if they, they heard horrific, despairing news? They would grieve, and how would they grieve? They would rend their garments. They would rip them. And how would it be ripped? It would be ripped from the top down. What the Father is telling us is, you have unlimited access to me because I lost something precious, something valuable, something grievous had to happen in order for you to be able to have joy. He tears from top to bottom rends his garment, the most intimate garment that stood between us and the Holy of Holies. As Jesus suffered on the cross, yes, it pleased the Father to crush his Son. But we can read that in Isaiah chapter 53 so academically that we forget no parent can watch their child suffering without suffering alongside of them. And as the Father saw his Son suffer, he did not step in to help. He heard his son groan on the cross, and he did nothing to help him. He had helped people in the past. Genesis 22, Abraham and Isaac. Isaac was placed on an altar, and God jumped in right before Abraham brought that knife down upon his son, the son whom he loved. But here the Father does not stay his hand. The Father allows the full, furious, righteous wrath to go deeply into the Son's heart. That's why he grieves. He rips the veil. But we need to remember that the Father and the Son were not forced to suffer. You need to remember they're not forced to suffer. This is not something has gone wrong We'll just roll with it and we'll make it all okay. They chose to suffer. This is the plan. Isaiah 53 verse 10, it was the will of God to crush his son. Why? Because without that plan in place, no one would be saved. So what could break the heart of God more 
than someone thinking they have to add to that. What more would you have Jesus do to prove that he loves you? He picked this. He planned this. This was suffering that was not forced, but he chose this plan to save you. We see clearly in these last four statements of Jesus on the cross, his love, his sovereign power, every single statement that Jesus makes is from the scriptures, prophecy being fulfilled. He's forsaken at the cross. We see God's inflexible holiness and boundless love colliding. We see the horror of sin on display. We see the beauty of grace on display. Spurgeon said, without the cross, there would have been a wound for which there was no ointment and a pain for which there was no balm. So Jesus is forsaken, so you and I don't have to be. He's thirsty. Spurgeon said, meet the thirsty Christ at the cross and your soul will never go thirsty again. In fact, in Revelation 22, verse 17, God says, let the one who's thirsty come and drink without cost. I have done all the work for you to be able to drink to your fill. Be satisfied. It's finished. It's completely done. And we can rest in Christ's finished work as Jesus rests in his Father's hands as he gives up his spirit. Jesus went through darkness so that we would have light. Jesus was forsaken so that we would never be. Jesus was cursed so that we would be blessed. Jesus suffered hell so that we could enjoy heaven. Jesus drank the cup of the Father's wrath so that we could drink the cup of joy. Jesus was thirsty so that we would always be satisfied. And so as the hymn writer says, Upon a life I did not live, upon a death I did not die, another's death, another's life, I cast my soul eternally. Bold shall I stand in that great day, for who unto my charge can lay? Fully absolved by Christ I am from sin and fear, from guilt and shame. Father, we are blown away by the sacrifice of your Son. We stand amazed by it. We stand overwhelmed by it. And that's why we want to respond by saying, how can this be? How can this be that my maker, my creator, my God would die? How can it be that God died, much less died for me, a sinner, the one who offended him while I was still in my sins? You came and died for me. So we sing, how can this be? We rehearse the beauty of the gospel. We listen to our Savior cry out. With a loud voice, why have you forsaken me? And with a whisper, I am thirsty. And with a loud voice for all to hear, God, I pray that this sermon that Jesus spoke, one word, to tell us that it's finished, it's paid in full, it's accomplished, that that word would always be ringing in our ears. There's nothing left for us to do but to follow you and to give ourselves for the one who gave himself for us. And we see that curtain torn in two, knowing that we boldly go before the throne, not because of our works. God, we do not question your love. We do not question your working. We trust it. We trust the finished work of Jesus on the cross today. And we declare that with our lives as now we declare it with our lips. We pray it in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. Stand together and in response, sing and can.